Human Rights First is pleased to host this conference call and we thank you for joining us. Thanks also to the members of today's panel who are here to discuss U.S. detention of families seeking asylum at this pivotal moment, nearly one year after the administration announced its plan to send mothers and children seeking asylum from Central America to U.S. immigration detention facilities, a few weeks after ICE's announced series of actions to improve oversight of family detention. The week after 136 members of Congress sent a letter to DHS Secretary Johnson, and just hours after 33 Democratic senators wrote to Secretary Johnson and said, we do not believe there is any system of mass family detention that will work or is consistent with our moral values and historic commitment to provide safe and humane refuge to those fleeing persecution. Last year, thousands of women and children crossed the U.S.-Mexico border seeking safety. The administration announced last June that it would send families to U.S. immigration detention facilities. Now, a year later, members of Congress are decrying the Obama administration's family detention scheme, and experts are increasingly concerned about the physical and mental health ramifications of holding children and their families in immigration detention facilities. Many have now been detained for months, and some for eight or ten months already, with very limited access to counsel. Instead of changing course, the administration has doubled down on its family detention policy. It has secured increased funding for family detention facilities. It is defending its use of detention to deter asylum seekers and migrants in a federal district court litigation, and as of this week, expanded its capacity to hold asylum seekers at the Dilley facility to detain up to 2,400 children and their parents. And if we have a terrific panel here today to discuss these issues. Um, I am your moderator, and my name is Eleanor Acer. I'm the Senior Refugee Protection Director at Human Rights First. We have Kevin Appleby of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, Alex Narasta of Cato Institute, Vanessa Allen from Human Rights First, and Dr. Alan Keller of the Bellevue NYU Program for Survivors of Torture. I will start first with Mr. Appleby. Kevin Appleby is Director of the Office of Migration Policy and Public Affairs for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, Migration and Refugee Services Offices, and a widely respected expert on international and U.S. refugee issues. Kevin? Thank you, Eleanor, and thank you for having me. Um, on behalf of the U.S. Catholic Bishops, I join the voices of elected officials on both sides of Capitol Hill in, in calling for an end to family detention. The bishops are particularly troubled by this policy as they see it as unnecessary in violation of human rights and international uh, standards and further traumatizing a vulnerable population fleeing violence from, the, from their home, con home countries. The bishops have, have visited both Carnes Detention Center and Dilley Detention Center and have visited with these families and heard their tragic stories so they know firsthand of what these young mothers and children have experienced on their journey to the United States. Their main concern is how our nation is further traumatizing these vulnerable uh, individuals and families. The question here is why is the administration pursuing this policy? Well, by their own admission, they're pursuing it as a method to deter families from coming, but this is both inhumane and ineffective. The forces driving these families, including the threat of death and persecution, are much stronger than any deterrence factor. Even with this policy in place, plus 
the U.S.-backed interdictions that are occurring in Mexico and in Central America to prevent families and unaccompanied children from arriving. Up to 40,000 family members are expected to arrive before the end of the fiscal year in the United States. <clears throat> so this isn't working, and it's inhumane, and it further harms vulnerable uh, fellow human beings. There are humane alternatives to this problem, which the bishop spelled out in our recent report with the Center for Migration Studies, Unlocking Human Dignity, a plan to transform U.S. immigrant detention system. Community-based alternatives to detention have been found to be effective in terms of ensuring that those who participate in these programs appear at their court hearings, but also very humane um, in that individuals and families can be served in the community with a case management model. It also is very much uh, less expensive than family detention, almost three times less per day uh, per individual to be in a community-based alternative detention program than in family detention. And this is a perfect model for these families, many of whom have family members in the community. What the model would do, what this alternative would do, would provide case management services to these families so that they can obtain attorneys, they can get social services, and they will appear at their hearings and get a valid um, and fair uh, judicial hearing on their claims. And many of these claims are valid claims. So um, in conclusion, and on behalf of the bishops, we urge the president and the administration to heed the calls from Congress and others around the country and to end this practice. The so-called reforms announced last week by the administration are mere window dressing, and it won't solve the underlying problem here. This policy is a stain on the administration's immigration record and a threat to the president's legacy. It should end immediately. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. I'm now going to turn to our next panelist, Alex Narasta of the Cato Institute. Alex is the Immigration Policy Analyst at the Cato Institute's Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity. He's also prolific in his writings on immigration, and we really appreciate the opportunity to have him talk today with us about the issue of immigration detention and families seeking asylum. Alex? Thank you very much for having me here today. I think it's important to take a look at when this controversy really began. Now, those of us who have been watching immigration and immigration enforcement know that detention has been a big deal for years, but we really sort of entered the public limelight uh, last year when the surge of unaccompanied child migrants on the southwest border uh, really captured a lot of attention. But it's important to realize that this year, uh, so far, compared to the same period of time last year, the number of unauthorized uh, or unaccompanied alien children is about 48% less than what it was last year, and the family units are down 35%. And there is an argument out there that the administration's or the, the government's increase in family detention has had something to do with this deterrent effect. Um, I'm not quite sure. That, I'm not sure that's the case. I think probably the bigger thing that occurred is outside of the bounds of the United States, in that the Mexican government has decided to crack down and return to its previous harsh immigration policies that reigned for most of its history, and that's one of the main reasons why we're seeing a decrease. Not because 
of the uh, detention of large numbers of children and women uh, with asylum and refugee claims in the United States in basically jail-like uh, situations. Now, the most common argument used for why we need detention for these folks in the United States is that they are not going to comply with their court orders. They are not going to show up to court. They're just going to basically abscond into the United States and uh, become part of the unauthorized population. Uh, this is based, I think, on a misreading of the statistics available. Uh, what we see is um, four alternatives for detention. Uh, we see about 99% of folks who are under such an alternative uh, system show up for their court, their, their court cases, 99%. In addition to that, the, uh, the typical uh, alternative to detention costs about $5 per day per migrant compared to $343 a day per bed in a family migration center. So it's not only more effective to have alternatives to detention and that more people show up for their court cases or their, their, their hearings in front of judges, but it's also a lot cheaper. So we get exactly what people want for a small, small fraction of the price. That is $5 a day compared to $343. Uh, the U.S. has had a long uh, commitment to refugees that I think it's turned its back on in the last, um, uh, since uh, about the 1920s. Uh, we have to remember, you know, a lot of our history are of religious or other refugees coming here from the Puritans coming here uh, to the Scots-Irish fleeing uh, brutal wars, to the Irish themselves fleeing a famine, to the Germans fleeing the revolutions after 1848 and being brutally crushed, to lots of Eastern European and Russian Jews fleeing pogroms in the late 19th and early 20th century, to some Armenians who were able to escape uh, the genocide perpetrated by the Turks over there, as well as many other groups. Uh, sadly, we turned our back on these, uh, these folks uh, after 1920. And only recently, uh, only beginning in the late 1940s, have we sort of cracked the door a little bit in terms of refugee and asylum policy, allowing more people to come in here. Oftentimes, you'll hear people talk about asylum or refugee policy as a loophole in our immigration system, and nothing could be further from the truth. Um, asylum and refugee laws are an integral part of a humanitarian and traditionally American immigration policy that allows people to flee persecution in their homelands and seek freedom here in the United States. It's important that when they come here, they not be met by armed guards who are locked them up in jail-like conditions, exposing them to mental and health risks for no increase or no benefit uh, in terms of security in the United States. So I think it's uh, absolutely imperative that we end family detention uh, for these folks who are coming over here and uh, at a very minimum transfer to an alternative detention policy that is both cheaper, more humane, and more in line with our uh, traditions of being welcoming to the rest of the world. Thank you. Thank you very much, Alex, and thank you for joining us today. Uh, next up, we have Vanessa Allen. Vanessa is the Managing Attorney for Refugee Representation at Human Rights First. And Vanessa just returned from a week of uh, working as a lawyer uh, at the uh, Dilley facility in Texas, assisting women and children detained there and providing them with legal counsel. Vanessa? Yeah, thanks, Eleanor, and thanks everybody who's joined the call today. Um, I'm on this call, and I'm very glad to be here to talk about my experience in Dilley during the last week. 
Um, myself and, a, and another legal assistant from our Houston office at Human Rights First were able to spend an entire week in the facility representing um, women and the kids that are being held with them. Um, the numbers of people being detained continue to increase. I can really only speak to what I saw in the visitation area as well as the immigration court and asylum officer trailer area because we were completely restricted from being able to actually go into the living areas where the women and kids are being held or where the schools might be or any other kind of part of the facility. And actually at one point we were even locked out entirely, which I can describe more if anyone is interested in, in hearing about it. Um, in, the, in, the, in the cases of the women and the children that I had the opportunity to work with, um, I saw repeatedly quite an interesting pattern. And again, I was only there for a week. There are many volunteers that keep cycling in and out of there and they can confirm this same pattern, which is that despite what ICE has said about trying to lower the bonds for the women who are eligible for bond or paroling them into the United States based on humanitarian parole, it seems like there continues to be a trend where ICE sets a bond that is exceptionally high and one that women and their family members who may already be present in the United States, which is a lot of them actually, and we found that there were often families that were willing to house, support, clothe, and swear to take care of the women and the kids if they were released in um, cities all over the United States. That includes Atlanta, New York, Los Angeles, all over the state of Maryland. Um, within Texas, Houston particularly was a place where um, a lot of families were living. If only the women and children could actually be released into their care. Um, unfortunately, ICE is setting a bond um, under their discretion before a case will get to the immigration judge at a very high amount for these families. Um, $15,000 was not necessarily unusual, $8,000, and often no bond at all. It was rare to see an ICE bond that was lower than $8,000 during the period that I was there, which is, again, quite a lot of money. Um, what makes it really particularly frustrating is once the women and their kids would be brought before the immigration court, which is televideoed in from Miami. So we had an interesting time trying to explain to the women and their children exactly what they were going to be seeing and experiencing because they, they had to look at a giant camera. One of them asked us, should I look at the TV? Should I look at the camera? I don't know who I'm supposed to look at. I know how important this is because my child's future can depend on it. The entire experience is completely disorienting and the immigration judges, God bless them, I would have to say, um, are actually very uh, helpful and amenable and kind and generous to the women and the children, which I, I have to laud them for. And they are very um, helpful with the bonds as well. We provide a lot of evidence of what the family members are able to do, if they have status, if they have the ability to provide a home for the family. The judges were lowering those ICE bonds on a regular and continuous basis from $15,000 and $8,000 all the way down to the statutory minimum of $1,500. And I even had one hearing where the judge consented to conditional parole, which is extremely rare to be able to obtain because the woman had some severe medical issues. She had a been a victim of sexual violence here in the United States after having crossed the border. Um, so she had alternative forms of relief and was pursuing them and she was suffering from quite a lot of mental trauma in detention. She had a stack of over 100 pages of medical reports um, confirming that she was suffering. In detention. So the judge said, you know what, in this instance, I think she shouldn't have to pay a bond at all. And the ICE trial attorney objected and said, if you give conditional parole to this woman, I will appeal the case, which means that she would wait even longer in detention while her case was being appealed to the Board of Immigration Appeals. So in the end, the client made the choice, it is her choice, um, to take the $15,000 lowest bond. And we are still trying to get her out, even though I'm back in my office and no longer at the facility. We're still trying to get her out because she, she really does need to go. Um, the other thing I'd like to say is uh, both judges actually are lowering those bonds, like I said, from $3,000 to $15. That's the range. 
Um, so it's a big waste of everyone's time and energy to have to go through all these bond hearings when we know that it's going to be lowered in the end and ICE continues to set them far too high. In terms of what I was seeing, um, in, in, in terms of uh, personal human stories, there are so many things I could talk about. It was just, it was day and night. We were there from 6 in the morning till 6 at night. And then we would continue work in the night to try and prepare all the legal materials we needed to be prepared for these bond hearings and other things to help the women. I mean, we saw um, children who, um, you know, their health is suffering, their mental health, their physical health. Uh, we had one volunteer who tried to offer an apple to one child and he said, I would love to be able to eat that apple, but my teeth hurt too much and I think they'll break if I bite into that apple. So while they are providing them with good and, and healthy snacks, the children can't even eat them. Regularly women were reporting to us that there are so many of them and so few medical officers in the medical unit that they will wait hours to see a doctor for either themselves or for their children. We had one woman who, the reason one of her bonds was lowered so, so low is she had a, a small child, he's three years old, and he had a fever for five days straight of 105 degrees. When she finally did get into the medic every day after waiting for hours, all they would say to her is give him water and bathe him in cool water. On the fifth day, they finally did give her some acetaminophen for the child. But again, this just speaks to the volume of women and children who are being kept there and the lack of adequate staffing to care for their needs while they are there. Um, another thing that we found pretty disturbing that they reported to us on a regular basis was um, their sleep patterns. The guards um, from the Correction Corporations of America, CCA, which is the, um, the contractor who runs the facility, told the women and told us that because of liability reasons, they have to go into the sleeping areas and wake the women and children every hour they either have to use flashlights or turn the lights on to make sure, quote unquote, that everyone is breathing or it's a liability issue. Um, if anyone is hiding under the blanket because the light is disruptive, they will lift the blanket to look in and make sure that the woman or child is in fact still breathing. And this may sound like a small thing, but if you can imagine for a month and month straight, as an adult or even as a small child being woken up on an hourly basis, the sleep deprivation that's involved in that alone is a huge hardship. I mean, I can speak to the sleep deprivation I felt after being there for one week, and I got to leave and go to sleep in my hotel room. So there are, there are many things I could speak to about what I experienced there. In the end, the access to counsel is also a huge issue. Um, the rules constantly change every single day about what you can bring in, what you can't bring in, who you can see, who they'll bring to see you, how you can access the clients, and whether you can even get into the facility at all. On our last day there on Friday morning, we were in fact locked out um, and told we were not allowed to enter the facility until 8 a.m., which coincidentally was after our credible fear interviews and courts would have started. Um, I don't know why 8 a.m. was picked as an hour other than everyone is fully well aware that we begin at 7.30 for both of, those, um, both of those meetings. We had clients prepared and ready to go expecting our presence there, and we were not admitted into the building until it was far too late. So, Thanks to our contacts, though, we were able to try and email, and we set up a hotspot in the security area. We were able to email to people in Washington, D.C. and in Miami to try and ask them to please wait for us, that we were having an access issue. Um, it's just really difficult to actually attempt to adequately represent these women, even just trying to get them out, much less trying to do any kind of substantive merits-based work on their cases. Um, I think I'll stop there because I'm pretty sure I've been talking too long, but I, I welcome any questions if anybody has them. Thank you very much, Vanessa. Uh, our next speaker is Dr. Alan Keller. Dr. Keller is the director and co-founder of the Bellevue NYU Program for Survivors of Torture, where he oversees medical services for patients. 
Dr. Keller has written numerous, numerous articles on leading medical journals relating to torture and caring for asylum seekers and refugees, and he's a member of the International Advisory Board of Physicians for Human Rights. Alan? Thank you so much, Eleanor. Can you hear me okay? Perfectly. Thank you. Great. Uh, so I uh, am a general internist. I'm a physician, and I have been studying, monitoring, and evaluating those in immigration detention since the surge in immigration detention back in 1996. And I want to first say unequivocally that family immigration detention is profoundly harmful to the health and well-beings of the families that we as a nation have chosen to subject to this institutional cruelty. Make no mistake about it. There are ways to minimize harm. And in fact, I think our colleagues at Immigration Customs Enforcement are trying. There's a lot more that they can do. But that at the end of the day, no matter what you do, at best you're talking about harm reduction and those consequences are uh, profound. So why is this the case? Well, first of all, with regards to who is in detention, family detention right now, this is primarily women and children from Central America. And who are these individuals? Well, based on studies that we have conducted and that others groups have conducted, overwhelmingly, this is a population of refugees. These are individuals who fled their countries, not because they wanted to, not for a green card lottery, but because they felt they had no choice. So they are a population already at risk of profound health consequences from trauma, from family members being murdered, from rapes, from other threats. So they didn't leave, again, by their cho own choice. They left because they had no choice. They came to our great country, as so many did, as so many of our families did, seeking safety and a better life. And what they found was they were treated like criminals. They were often, and this is based on interviews that we've conducted, accused of lying. They then are, some are released, uh, and many are, and a growing number, are put in family detention centers. And make no mistake about it, this is a growing public health epidemic. And the reason I say that is based on sheer numbers. In 2014, I believe nationwide, there were approximately 100 beds for families in detention. I believe the goal of the administration is to increase the capacity to over 6,000. So by sheer numbers, we're talking an epidemic of pain and suffering. And why is this the case? Well, even if you try to make the conditions humane, at the end of the day, it's still a detention and a prison. And prisons, by their very nature, are disruptive to the family units. They are profound causes of stress, profound causes of isolation. Uh, Artesia, which was the first family detention uh, center opened by uh, our government, uh, was 
a horrific example of isolation built in the middle of the desert. And while more of the facilities recently are closer, they still are profoundly isolated. We have done studies in the past among asylum seekers which showed a clear correlation that the longer individuals are in immigration detention, the worse their psychological distress becomes. Uh, and in fact, other studies have shown that those traumatic effects, in addition to the trauma they may have caused or, or, or suffered, which resulted them to flee, those continue for years after. So as a matter of health, as a matter of humanity, as a matter of economics, it's essential that we look at alternatives. And frankly, the we needs to be the administration. Over and over, I've heard from my colleagues at the Department of Homeland Security, they are doing what they are told. So the responsibility for this unequivocally lies on the shoulders of President Obama, Vice President Biden, and Secretary Johnson. I know that these are decent men, and I like to think that they will make the right decision. And I hope that they will choose not to have as their legacy one of detaining immigrant families and causing devastating health consequences to these individuals and to their children. I'll leave you with one uh, vignette. In one of the facilities, I interviewed a mother who was there who had fled her Central American country because of threats from her gang. And when she went to the police uh, to complain, her husband was shot in retaliation. She fled, came, was then brought into a, into a detention facility, and she was sobbing while I talked to her. And when I said, why, what are you crying about? And she says, I don't know what to say to my daughter, who was, I think, six or seven. I said, what do you mean? And she said, what do I say to my daughter who keeps asking me, Mommy, what did we do wrong? Why are we in prison? And that kind of uncertainty, that kind of pain can last a lifetime. So as a matter of compassion, as a matter of health imperative, we need to end family detention, and we need to do it now. Thank you very much, Alan, and thanks to all of the panelists for their comments and perspectives. Um, they have really helped to outline uh, the critical next steps for the administration to take in the wake of the Senate letter uh, just hours ago and uh, the letter from members of the House uh, last week. We will now uh, open the call for any questions uh, from anyone who is on the line, and our operator will give instructions in case there are questions. Thank you very much. Uh, if you'd like to ask a question or make a comment, uh, please press star and the number one on your telephone keypad. Please press star and the number one on your telephone keypad, and I'll open your line. And we'll just pause for a moment. And there are no questions or comments in queue. Great. We can just wait one minute, and then we can, I guess, sign off.
Great. Okay, we should probably wind it down then. Thank you so much, operator. Thank you, And Mary. thank you again to our panelists. And this concludes our afternoon teleconference. You may disconnect your lines. Great. Uh, can I, is there a chance to say thank you to everyone? Oops. Uh, okay. <laughs>